Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Um, we decided we're going to do a series on Romans, the book of Romans. It's a long book. It's 16 chapters long. So just so you kind of know the goal, the schedule is this. We're going to do about eight weeks, and then we're going to come up to our season of celebration, which we do every year, which means Thanksgiving, Christmas, the holidays, we'll focus on that stuff. Then in the new year, we'll pick back up, and we'll do about another eight weeks or so, and then we'll get, and that'll lead us right up to Palm Sunday. So uh, we're going to be doing this, aside from holidays, for most of the, for about a year. Um, so, uh, but the question is why, right? Why Romans? Why, why is it, that's a lot of time. To, uh, to spend on Romans. Um, we want to take our time going through it. It is a lot of chapters. Um, certainly, it's something that you guys could do in your groups. Why, why are we doing this on Sunday night? And I'll tell you what, Romans is seen by many people as sort of Paul's magnum opus. It's seen by many people as sort of Paul's ultimate letter of clarity as regards to the gospel. Um, in fact, I wanted to just bring up the following quotes uh, to give credit where credit is due. They actually come from a, a Calvary pastor. His name is David Guzik, and he uh, kind of pulled these together just to show how throughout history Romans has had an impact uh, upon some of the, the important figures in the church. And so I just thought I'd share some of these with you to give you a sense of the important place that Romans has. So Augustine, uh, it says, In the summer of 386, a young man wept in the backyard of a friend. He knew his life of sin and rebellion against God left him empty and feeling dead, but he just couldn't find the strength to make a final real decision for Jesus Christ. As he sat, he heard children playing a game and they called out to each other these words, take up and read, take up and read. Thinking God had a message to him in the words of the children, he picked up a scroll lying nearby. Tells you how long ago this was, he picked up a scroll. And he began to read and he read this, not in reveling in drunkenness, You may not know this, Augustine had a problem with drunkenness and debauchery. Um, Not in reveling in drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And what we're told is suddenly Augustine found that he no longer lacked the power to believe in Christ. He kind of lacked the power to resist. And he gave his life to Christ right at that moment. And the first thing he did sort of in his Christian walk was to take the book of Romans and walk through it from beginning to end. And he credited that with sort of putting him on the right path for the rest of his life. Martin Luther. In August of 1513, a monk lectured on the book of Psalms to seminary students, but his inner life was nothing but turmoil. In his studies, he came across Psalm 31.1, In thy righteousness deliver me. The passage confused Luther. How could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins? Luther struggled with depression as a monk, a significant amount of it, and part of it is because he believed correctly that, that he was a sinner. And, uh, and so when he read this passage in Psalms, which says, your righteousness delivers me, he just thought, no, righteousness doesn't deliver me. The righteousness of God condemns me, sends me to hell. So then Luther kept thinking about Romans 1.17, which says the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther says this, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. 
John Wesley. On May of 1738, a failed minister and missionary reluctantly went to a small Bible study where someone read aloud from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine. And for those who don't know, Wesley was uh, the founder of the Methodist Church. Uh, I can give you some more just really quick quotes kind of show the importance of Romans in the world, what people have said. Martin Luther said this about Romans. He said, it is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who is kind of the successor to Luther, said it was the compendium of Christian doctrine. John Calvin said of the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the whole understanding of the whole scripture. He said, if you understood Romans, you would understand all of scripture. Wouldn't that be nice? So we'll start in Romans and we'll see how that goes. Samuel Coleridge, not a theologian. Who knows who Samuel Coleridge is? Does anybody know? Uh, poet. Samuel Coleridge wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, um, kind of a, a, a romance poet uh, in the romantic period. He was also a literary critic, so he knows uh, literary works. And he said this of Paul's letter to the Romans. He said it is the most profound work in existence. Frederick Godet, I don't expect you to know who that is. I barely know who that is. That's a 19th century Swiss theologian. Aren't you up on your 19th century Swiss theologians? <laughs> uh, he said this with the cathedral of the Christian faith. And I could go on and on and on. Romans is an amazing book, which has a significant impact on, uh, on so many people in the church. And I think as we go through it, my hope is that you'll see why. It is, a, it is a clarity of the gospel, which is refreshing and encouraging and helpful. If there are questions that you have about the gospel, it's very possible, even likely, that Paul addresses those in the book of Romans. However, we should acknowledge that even Peter, in his letter to a church, describes Paul as a good brother who is sometimes difficult to understand. <laughs> so we'll take our time as we go through Romans. And I think you'll find uh, that the parts that need to be understood are very clear and can be understood. Uh, but it is so profound and so deep, there will be mysteries within it. And that's okay too. Um, but hopefully it will have the kind of impact on you um, that it's had on people throughout the ages. And I think it's worth taking the time to walk through. Uh, besides, we're not in a hurry. We do this till the Lord comes back, and if he comes back in the middle, he'll explain it better anyway. Um, but uh, other than that, we've got time. So we'll go through it. And we're going to do a little bit of an experiment tonight, and that's that, you know, one of the things that's interesting as a, as a teacher is that you get used to the idea that when you preach things on a Sunday night, there's so much context that you wish you could give, but you can never go back and give all of the context because the reality is that the context for every piece of scripture is all the rest of scripture and it's all the history of the world. And, and so there's no way to go back and give it all. And so a lot of times you just have to, have to obviously jump in. And those of you who've been Christians a while and who have, have, have been diligent to take the effort and the time to spend time in scripture over that period of time, have discovered that there is context and there is depth that comes just from time. That we can't, there's no substitute for that. So I encourage you, continue, you know, continue, be diligent in the scriptures, continue to look at them and read them and study them because you'll find suddenly one day over time, you'll be like, oh, 
I now understand this so much better because I have all of this weight of information behind me. Well, we can do that, but the experiment I want to do tonight is I, I, I do think what's interesting about Romans, because it is sort of his magnum opus, because it is so much the sort of the, the, the I don't even want to say the pinnacle, his writings are pretty amazing in general, but it, it's so much the, the essence of who Paul is and what his ministry is and, and, and what he wants to say after all of his ministry that I think if you know Paul, if you can get to know Paul better, you will already enter Romans. Before we even read the first verse in Romans, I think if you have some understanding about Paul, you will find as you read Romans that he says things you already expected him to say. You will almost be able to predict what he will write when you know him as well as I hope that you're about to. Now, still a deep dive into Paul. We could do that for a year, but we're not going to. But we are going to walk through just, his, just the, the beginnings of his life up to the point when he writes Romans. I want you to have a context of where the writing of Romans comes into play in Paul's ministry. Where is he at as a person? What is he thinking? What's important to him? What has led him to the point where he's writing the, the believers in Rome? Why is he even doing that? So what we're going to do tonight is spend the most of our time simply talking about Paul a little bit. And I hope, as we do, that it will, that it will then make things that, ha that you read in Romans make more sense as we go. Because you'll say, of course Paul would say that, because this is what Paul cares about. And so we're going to do that, and then we're going to read just a few verses at the very beginning of, of Romans, the introduction, to kind of give you that segue and see if, if, uh, if this experiment bears fruit, <laughs> which I think it will. So we're going to do a relatively deep dive as much as we can do in one Sunday night, okay, into Paul. So first, the, the, again, I, we're going to spend part of our time just walking through the missionary journeys of Paul. But before we do, let's just talk about who he is a little bit. So to begin with, Paul was Saul. His name was Saul. He was born Saul. Saul was a very important name in the Jewish world. Does anybody recall why Saul would be an important name? He was the first king of Israel. He wasn't a good one, but he was still the first, right? I mean, the first ever king. And so, and he was an imposing figure. He was an important figure. He's important, even though he wasn't great at his job. And so to name your child Saul is to identify with this history of Judaism. It is for a Jewish family to name their son Saul to say, this is our Jewish son destined for great Jewish things. It sort of immediately establishes a legacy for which he was part of. And so here's Saul raised in that context. Saul goes through all the education that, that, that a, an orthodox and committed Jewish family would have him go through. Circumcised on the eighth day when he's supposed to be. He learns he probably realistically, historically, and knowing Saul and knowing what was going on in his days, he probably had the first five books. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Hear this. He probably had them memorized in Hebrew by the time he was 13. Okay? That's the kind of rigorous education that this, this man had. He grows up to be, uh, by everybody's reckonings, including his own, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He is following the law. He's rigorous about it. He's solid. He's dependable. He's reliable. He's zealous for God. He's devoted to God. 
He lays aside any ambition except the ambition to be for God everything that he can be. And so when this upstart, this false messiah in his mind named Jesus starts taking over the world, when there are so many Jews who begin to follow this heresy, who begin to follow this idolatry to worship a man, Saul is incensed and offended on behalf of God. And so Saul goes to the ruling authorities, to the Sanhedrin, and he asks for authority. As a young man, give me more authority than you would typically give a young man. These are strange days, and they require strange acts, and I want you to give me authority, and I will personally make it my responsibility to make sure that the way, as Christians were at that time called, is stamped out. That this heresy goes no further. And if you give me the authority... I will do everything that the Jewish law says I'm allowed to do, including capital punishment for heretics. And he goes to them, and they grant him that authority, which shows the respect they had for him. They believed that he could be the guy to do this. First time we see him sort of in this authoritative position is at the stoning of Stephen. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, he gets, he gets stoned, and we're told that Saul is standing there holding the cloaks of those who do the actual stoning. And I think what that means is he paved the way. He authorized this act. And then he held their cloaks so that they could do it. This is not a passive participation. This is probably the responsibility is his. And he takes it seriously. Eager to be the Pharisees enforcer, he begins to set off across the world determined to go from town to town to town, synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, and find the heretics, drag them out of their homes, as he says later that he did do in many occasions, drag them out of their homes, torture them, punish them, until they acknowledged and gave up other members of the way. His goal being to get to the leaders, to get to Peter, to get to James, to get to John, to get to the leaders of the way and, and execute them, imprison them, execute them if necessary, and he, he pulls no punches. And as he drags people out of their houses, when it was necessary, when they refused to recant, they were executed. And Saul is engaged in this behavior. On the road to Damascus, as he's doing this, as he's engaged in his mission of zeal, on the road to Damascus, suddenly he, he sees a vision and he hears a voice. And it's Jesus. He encounters Jesus as personally as any of the other apostles did, but after Jesus has already died. <laughs> and Jesus knocks Saul over, and he speaks to him both sympathetically and directly. He says to Saul, you think you're working for me, but you're working against me. It is me, says Jesus, that you persecute. It is me that you are trying to execute. And he says to Saul, you make your own life so much harder. If you would just stop kicking against me, I can show you what your life can actually be. And Saul is blinded by the vision. I think the obvious metaphor is that he begins to realize for the first time how blind he has been. And Jesus tells him, to go on to Damascus and meet with a man there named Cornelius, that Cornelius will restore Saul's sight. 
So Saul travels and he meets with Cornelius who, who has also been given a vision to let Saul in. And this is important because without that vision, I doubt Cornelius would have let him in because this is the enemy. So Cornelius is given a vision, credit to his faith and trust in God. He lets Saul in, Saul enters, and Cornelius says, I have a vision, and basically my vision is I'm supposed to heal your eyes, but I'm also supposed to heal your spiritual eyes. And I will share with you the truth and the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's not the false Messiah. You can imagine this is a complete overturning of Saul's world. And as a result of this, he goes away. He reflects. Now, it depends on how you read the history, and I don't know if we'll ever know this, this side of heaven for sure, but anywhere from you know six months to three years, and I tend to lean on the three-year side, he spends reflecting and studying and repenting and recognizing his foolishness and becoming clear on the gospel. When you read things in Paul's letters where he talks about being the worst of all sinners, maybe now you understand why. Because he looks at the life he lived, he was not only, you know, just sort of living a, a life, uh, as Augustine says, of debauchery and licentiousness. He was actively executing those who were spreading the gospel. And as he looks at the actions of his life, he speaks of himself as the worst of all sinners. He often says things to the believers like, if the grace of God is enough for me, you can be sure it's enough for you. So after his reflection and his growth and his and his 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 comes to grips with the fact that he's been tragically wrong, he or somebody changes his name to Paul. We don't actually know when this happens. He just starts being called Paul, and it's an interesting choice though, because Saul, as we know, was a powerful name. It was the name that spoke of the greatness of who he was. Paul is a name that literally translated means small. And Saul had to recognize how small he was. Where his ambition before had been to be the greatest Pharisee, now his ambitions are small. And God's ability to work through him becomes large. And so Paul goes and he actually meets with the apostles, the same apostles that he was trying to get to. He gets to meet with them. He gets to Peter and James and John, and he gets to meet with them primarily because of a man named Barnabas. One of the apostles who is a man who shows himself repeatedly through scripture to be the best kind of naive, the best kind of innocent and trusting. Barnabas shows himself to be able to love and forgive and believe the best in someone even like Saul. <laughs> and so Barnabas takes it upon himself to take Paul to the apostles and Paul meets with them and says, I believe I'm called now to, to perform the mission that I was trying to squelch. I believe that I should be out there spreading the good news. It's kind of the least I can do, given all the efforts I gave to stop it. And the apostles, amazingly, after some discussion, give him their blessing. Barnabas, trusting, loving, forgiving Barnabas, perhaps this was part of the deal with the apostles, he takes Saul under his wing. He takes Paul under his wing and he, he offers to disciple Paul and mentor Paul, and he does. And then Barnabas and Paul decide it's time to spread the good news themselves. And they systematically set off across Europe to reach as many people as they can with no 
real goal other than, or plan, it seems, other than to go where God leads and share the gospel with whomever will listen. And that leads us to this map. So this is the first and second missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. Now over here, this is number one. And this is Antioch in Syria. It's called Syrian Antioch. The reason we call it Syrian Antioch is because Antioch is a little bit like a town that I grew up in called Farmington. You can find one in every state. <laughs> so we call this Syrian Antioch. We're going to run into Pisidian Antioch in this journey here in a little bit. This is called Syrian Antioch, and it becomes the home base. He keeps coming back to here in between his missions. So Paul and Barnabas and a guy named John Mark start in Antioch. And they set off, as we talked about, along that blue line to Cyprus. They head over to Cyprus, um, and they go there to preach the gospel. And when they get to Cyprus, they do what becomes a pattern. They go to the synagogue. Because remember, the, the Jewish Messiah, Paul assumes at the beginning, will make the most sense to the Jews. It's a Jewish sect, the way, at heart. It's basically just a, a Jewish Paul sees it as a Jewish fulfillment. Other people to see it as a Jewish heresy or a Jewish offshoot. But they go to the synagogue and they preach in the synagogues. And you might say, how do, they get, how do they do that when they're like this weird sect? Well, the synagogues, again, they function differently than our churches do today. I, we've talked about this before, but just a very brief reminder. The synagogues were often considered a place of discussion. They were often a place where teaching was done sitting down. If you'll notice, all the time Jesus is at the synagogue, he's usually sitting down. When he's like 12 and he gets left at the synagogue, they come back and he's sitting down asking questions. And they're all impressed with his wisdom by the questions he asks, not by the sermons he gives. And so a lot of times the, 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 the leader of the synagogue, the priest, would sit down and just ask questions. And they would have these conversations. So there wasn't a great deal of resistance if somebody was like, well, we have a we want to unfold the Jewish scriptures to you in a way that, that you maybe haven't seen. Of course, they would just call them the scriptures. We want to unfold the scriptures to you in a way that you haven't seen. There wouldn't immediately be resistance to that. And there's enough interest in the way and what's happening that people begin to open up the synagogue. So they go and they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. And while they're on Cyprus, they travel around. And at one point, they come, upon, they come to a place called Paphos, a little town called Paphos. And while they're there, there's a Jewish sorcerer called Elimas. Now, and he causes them problems, and there's a little bit of run-in. So what God does is he actually strikes the Jewish sorcerer blind, which probably Saul's like been there, seen that. So they, it's, they strike the sorcerer blind, and that causes some buzz, and people are discussing it. But it also, it also heats up things a little bit. So Paul and Barnabas decide it's time to move on, and they sail from there up to Pamphylia, that little yellow thing up there, to a place called Perga. And in Perga, something happens, which is not explained, but becomes important later. And that's that John Mark, for whatever reason, he bails. Now, we don't know why he does it, but it doesn't sound like it was just sort of a, okay, I have some things to take care of in Jerusalem. At least the way Paul sees it, he abandoned them. He deserted them. I think it's reasonable to assume what happened is things are starting to heat up. They're starting to see opposition. There wasn't that much opposition on Cyprus, but they did have this sorcerer and they blinded him. And now that, that's immediately kind of an act of war if you're on the sorcerer's side. And now they get to Perga. And I think that the opposition starts to happen. And John Mark is not up to it. And so John Mark leaves and he sails to Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas continue forward. 
And Paul and Barnabas don't preach in Perga. This is interesting, too. It doesn't say why. They do everywhere else. They stop. Even, you know, you take a breath and Paul is going to preach at you. But for some reason in Perga, they don't. And maybe it's because of whatever it is that caused John Mark to run off. Maybe the opposition was so heavy, they couldn't even speak. So they go on from Perga and they go to Pisidian Antioch, which if you can read it, it says Antioch in Pisidia up there. Um, and so they go to Pisidian Antioch and there Paul goes in and he, deli- and, he, and he goes in the synagogue and they're so impressed that they actually let him deliver a sermon type sermon. And so he preaches a sermon of the good news and they're so intrigued. They say, please come back next week because it's the Sabbath, right? So come back again next week. We want to hear more of this. But somewhere between this week and the next week, there's a group of Jews that are jealous of the, it says that specifically, that they're jealous of the attention Paul is getting. And so they begin to, to uh, raise up opposition. And so they start a riot. And before Paul and Barnabas are able to preach again the next week, they are kicked out. They're literally chased out of city and Antioch. And as they leave, Paul and Barnabas say, and it's a little unclear how they say this or what the tone is because they don't exactly follow through with it right away but it's a little foreshadowing from luke as they're leaving paul essentially says forget you jews i'm just going to start preaching to the gentiles because they don't try to kill me now he says that but he continues to preach in the synagogues so i don't know if that was just an emotional moment that isn't quite come to fruition but it's also foreshadowing where god's going to go with him um, but but that's it does tell us luke tells us that's kind of the words as they leave They're like, fine, we won't bother you Jews anymore. You don't want us? We'll start talking to the Gentiles. And they go to Iconium. Uh, And so as they, and that's over there, as they go to Iconium, they, once again, they speak in the synagogue and the city becomes immediately divided on the teachings of Paul and Barnabas. It's, there's those who think it's really good. It's, it's amazing. They start to believe and there's those that don't. And this is what becomes the pattern everywhere they go that they find believers, but they also find people who are not just opposed, but they're like Saul level opposed, right? They're like hated, hated, hating them. And for the first time, we're told specifically, this may have happened in Perga, this may have happened in uh, Pisidian Antioch, but we're told for the first time specifically that Paul and Barnabas get wind of a plot to kill them. And so they leave in the middle of the night. And they leave the city for Lystra, and Derba, which are the next two cities there. And in Lystra, Paul meets a man who is lame from birth. And so he heals this man who is lame from birth. Uh, God leads him to heal him, and he does. And here, a really interesting thing happens. Talk about a city being polarized. As soon as they heal him, and then they preach the gospel, it says that all the people of Derba said that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Apollos. Shows you, by the way, who's sort of, again, remember Barnabas is, is mentoring Paul, and they saw that. So, so Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Apollos, also the messenger. He was probably the main speaker. So they hailed him as gods. Paul and Barnabas are like, that's not really what we were hoping you'd get out of this. Um, but they do, and they kind of, they're, they're going crazy. The crowd is like a mob mentality about this. And then, in the way that all mobs do, suddenly there's a few Jews that are like, they're heretics. They're, taking, they're claiming to be gods, which of course they weren't. And the Jews turn on a dime and all the same, and Jesus experienced this, right? All these same people that hailed them as gods all of a sudden are now trying to catch them and stone them. And in fact, they catch Paul and they stone him so badly that they think he's dead. And they drag him outside of the city 
because it's unclean to leave a dead body in your city. And they drag him out of the city and they dump him for dead. Barnabas escapes. He finds Paul. Turns out Paul is not dead. And Barnabas nurses him back to health, really only about a day. So I'm going to assume God helped a little here too. Nurses him back to health and they decide maybe we'll leave here too. So they leave Lystra, they go to Derby, and when they get to Derby, they have a moment of sort of rest, the not as much opposition. They're able to preach, nobody tries to kill them, they, they, they uh, uh, have a good, good preaching, and then they decide to do this really interesting thing, given the stories I just told you. They decide to go back to Antioch through the cities that they just ran from. Because what they realize is, that in every city that they just left, they left two groups of people. They left those that want to kill them and those that trusted them. And what Paul doesn't want them to do is feel abandoned in the way, say, maybe he felt abandoned by John Mark. He doesn't want them to feel, he doesn't want these fledgling believers to, to stop believing because they just heard a great message, but now everybody in the city wants to kill them or kill Paul. So Paul and Barnabas decide, amazingly, bravely, we're going to go back through all the cities we just left, and we're going to go specifically to encourage and strengthen the believers that we left there. And we have to figure out a way that they can continue to prosper and strengthen themselves. And so as they go back through each of the cities, they do two things. One, they do less preaching in the synagogues, probably wise at this moment. But as they go back through, they find the believers and they gather them together. And they encourage them and they strengthen them. But they also appoint elders, leaders for each of these towns to, to, rule, to help guide these gatherings, these communities, these households, which is the word oikos, which is the word church. So on their way back through, they're planting churches. They probably weren't on their first way through. They were just preaching. But now they realize we've got all these people. And what are we going to do with them? And how can we keep them from being overrun by the opposition? And so they gather them, they strengthen them, and they appoint elders who will then be responsible for keeping those gatherings growing and steady and together. So they go to Lystra. They encourage the believers and set up a church. They go to Iconium. They encourage the believers and set up a church. They go to Pisidian Antioch. They encourage the believers and set up a church. And now they get back to Perga. And remember in Perga, did they preach? No. So guess what they do now? Paul's like, oh, we missed one. So they go ahead. <laughs> they go ahead and they go into the synagogue and they preach the word. And we're not told about any great opposition or we're not told what the, what the effect is. We're just told they do that. And then they get on a boat and they sail back to Antioch. And they have just completed what is now known as Paul's, I don't know why Barnabas doesn't get credit, he was there too, but their first missionary journey. We know that this missionary journey took a minimum of a year and a half. And one thing I want you to notice as we go through this, we've talked a lot about softer, slower, and smaller. And I want you to notice how much of even Paul's ministry, as big as it is, as important as it is, I want you to notice how much patience he has, how slow he goes, how small he goes, and how soft he goes. 
He doesn't go in and take over towns. He preaches in the synagogue, and when, when they won't do that, he just goes back and strengthens the little tiny communities that they have. So as we keep going, I just want you to see that softer, slower, smaller, it's happening even in these missionary journeys. It takes them a year and a half. It's not that much. I mean, it's, it's good. It's good. But it's kind of a small area that they've covered so far. Uh, also, just for a point of reference, it's probably right now when they get back to Antioch, it's, it's late 80, 40s. So like 80, 47, 48, 49. And as a point of reference, Jesus probably died in 80, 33. So if anybody tells you the missionary journey of Paul was far removed from the actual crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they just don't know their history. This is within 15 years. This is important because it means when Paul makes claims about Jesus' resurrection, about witnesses who saw him come alive, it can all be checked. People are new enough. Some of the people he talks to have known Jesus or knew someone who knew Jesus or knew someone who saw Jesus come back to life or knew someone who saw Jesus heal someone. It's all very fresh. While they're in Antioch hanging out, Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. So this is in your Bibles. It's called the letter to the Galatians. Who do you suppose that's to? Well, all those churches he just went to are in a place called Galatia. This is really important, though, because it helps you understand the letter to the Galatians isn't to a church or a city. It's to all of those cities. So he set up those communities and these elders, and now he writes letters back to them to say, hang in there. Hang in there and don't forget the gospel and don't forget what it's about and don't get confused by the opposition that's around. And that's the whole book of Galatians is, is giving them strength to stand firm against the opposition. And then Paul does this thing where he travels. You see, he starts his... Uh, actually, it's not on the map uh, because it's not actually part of his next missionary journey. He goes to Jerusalem. Now he goes to Jerusalem for something called the Jerusalem Council. And this is really important. So I'm going to take just a moment to tell you what's happening here. The, you may have heard about things like the Nicene Council, where the churches got together in the later, like about 300 AD, they get together and they're like, and they want to address things that haven't been sort of clearly delineated. You have one person, for example, in the Nicene Council, you have, you have a little pocket, very small, uh, one sort of important leader in a little small pocket of people who are questioning, who are saying that Jesus wasn't God. Whereas the rest of the, the church across the world is in, is in agreement that, that Jesus is God. But nowhere has anybody sort of said this is the official stance because there was no need to do so. So the Nicene Council gets together. It gets together all of the, 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 the bishops and leaders and elders of all the churches across the world, or at least representatives from many of them, and they take a vote, basically. They're like, do we believe that the apostles taught us that Jesus was God? And with no apologies to Dan Brown, who made stuff up in the Da Vinci Code, uh, it was not a close vote. It was like 376 to 1. And they, they said, no, yeah, it's clear Jesus is God. And so they come up with the Nicene Creed, which, explained, which talks about the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man and how that's, yes, that's attention, but it's true and it's the miracle of God. Okay, there are a number of councils throughout the history of church where this happens, where they get together not to create doctrine, but to clarify. Things have changed. Cultures change. What does this mean? How does this apply now? The very first of these councils is in the book of Acts, and it's the Jerusalem council, and it's with the apostles who are still alive. 
and it's with Paul. And here's what it's about. Remember when Paul walked out of Lystra and he said, forget you Jews, I'm going to start preaching to the Gentiles? Well, even though he kept preaching in synagogues, it's clear that he also began to emphasize and he began to see a lot of Gentiles receiving the gospel and becoming Christians. And this was confusing. We think, of course, but this was confusing because Jesus was, for many of them, they understood him to be the Jewish Messiah here to rescue the Jews from their 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 servanthood or even at this point now their sin but he's still a jewish messiah and we have all these gentiles becoming christians there's a lot of evidence god gives a lot of important events and acts to make it clear that he wants the gentiles to be part of this he does a lot of things to communicate that so there isn't so much question about whether they should be or not jesus himself seems to be promoting that but the question becomes what does it mean when a gentile becomes a christian among for example the Jews have this whole history of the law that they've learned to follow. And God said to them at the very beginning, in order for people to know that you are my people, your act of faith, which will demonstrate that you are following me, is circumcision. That is really important. There are examples in the Old Testament where people who didn't get circumcised or didn't get circumcised well were met by the angel of death and almost killed. Because God is like, this is that important. Okay? It's on God that they thought it was important. And so here they are, and they know that they are identified as God's people by their circumcision. Now, just to state the obvious, although that's an outward external symbol, it's also not one that everybody could see. They were not any more likely to show off their circumcision than we would be today. Okay, so it's not that it's like an easy marker from afar, but it's just this, this, this moment of, of commitment that I am part of this community and I'm the people of God. And so now you have all these Gentiles who are becoming Christians and not only do they not know the law of God and not only are they not following the law of God and let's be honest, there's a lot of chaos. There's people doing really weird things. If you read some of the letters Paul writes to the churches, you're like, what was going on in that church? Well, it's because Gentiles are messing it all up. So there was this movement that said, look, we, they need to at least be God's people. And he said that happens through circumcision. So for a Gentile to become a Christian, they must be circumcised. And Paul saw the danger in this was that once they committed to that, then it was going to be now that they're circumcised, they also need to obey all of the other laws. And Paul was concerned that the gospel of grace, which he understood to be the fulfillment of the law for all people, that it should be the same fulfillment for a Gentile that it is for a Jew. And they shouldn't be required to back up and retrace what the Jews went through before they get the fulfillment. I've, I've talked about the law in before. It is, it's kind of like a road sign. If our destination is Santa Fe, there's a road sign that says, this is the way to Santa Fe. And you follow that sign to get to Santa Fe. Nobody would say that sign is bad. Nobody would say that sign is wrong. Nobody would say that sign is useless. It serves a really important purpose. But also people recognize that if you stop at the sign for Santa Fe thinking it's Santa Fe, then you're misunderstanding the purpose of that sign. And that's how the law is. It's to lead us to the gospel, to Jesus. Doesn't mean it's bad or irrelevant or unimportant. It's actually really important. But if you stop at the law and mistake that for Jesus, then you've missed the point of the law. So Paul wanted to make sure that was clear to everybody, that the gospel is about the grace of God. 
And so he was telling Gentiles, you do not have to become Jews to become Christians. You do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to follow the law. Now, to be fair, he was also telling Jews that, but if you're a typical Jew, you're like, big deal, I already went through that whole circumcision thing. So there's a lot of questions. Add to this the fact that there is a huge racial tension between Gentiles and Jews going both directions, and that adds to the mix of difficulty. How do you get Jews and Gentiles in the same church to get along? After a while, there's, there's accusations of Gentiles, uh, from Gentiles that Jews are getting favorable treatment in churches, and it appears to be true. Then there's accusations from Jews that Gentiles are getting favorable treatment because they don't have to get circumcised. That's kind of true, too. This is what the Jerusalem Council is about. What do we do about these Gentiles? Number one, do they have to be circumcised? Number two, if they don't have to be circumcised, now what? Because the fact is that, that when we say they don't have to obey the law, that's really difficult because there's a lot of things like not sleeping with your in-laws and brother's wife and, 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 and not worshiping in false temples that would be good for them to not do if they're going to represent God. So how do we mix all that up? So the Jewish council, they get together, they have a long discussion. Paul goes there, speaks very eloquently about the fact that we cannot compromise on the gospel of grace. All of the apostles agree with him. Of course, even Peter has had visions from God saying essentially the same thing. They all agree. They say circumcision is not required for any Gentile. But they come up with a list of four things. Not to say you have to, not to, say you have to do these things in order to be saved, but to say these are things that we would recommend the Gentiles do in order to reflect the same kind of purity that the Israelites have always tried to reflect in order to show that you are committed to God's people and not just still of the world. And there are four fairly simple things, three of them we don't even apply anymore. What's interesting is these four things kind of become less and less the standard for Gentiles for one really good reason. And that's because Paul, in every letter he writes going forward, he begins to build a structure of behavior that's appropriate for people of God. You've read them all. Don't be promiscuous. Don't sleep with your brother's wife. You know, don't worship false gods. And so he kind of builds a behavioral structure, which he very clearly makes different from the grace of God for salvation. But then he simply says, this is what a Gentile should look like who is a child of God, who is a son of Abraham grafted in. Okay, long story, but this is an important council in Jerusalem because it sets the course for Paul to continue when he does his second missionary journey to emphasize the Gentiles even more. Because at that council, he says to them, I actually think God's calling me not just to allow Gentiles, but to focus on them. I think he's calling me to preach to the Gentiles. There's some interesting theology in there where he talks about the fact that God went to the Jews first and they said no. And so now God wants to go to the Gentiles because that and the Jews will recognize what's happening. And in their jealousy, if they're smart, they'll come on board too. So he loves everybody, but he, he thinks that God's call is for him to preach to the Gentiles. He says, Peter, do what you want. James, do what you want. John, do what you want. You all got to follow your call, but I'm going to the Gentiles. Okay. You with me? You good? Okay. So Paul and Barnabas decide later, and we don't know how much later, but maybe a year, maybe a couple years, um, they decide to go on their second missionary journey. But right at the beginning, as they're about to go off on their journey together, they have a problem. And the problem is this. Barnabas says, hey, John Mark should go with us. The guy needs a second chance. Right? I know he blew it, but 
but remember, this is Barnabas. Barnabas is the king of second chances. He's like, come on, Saul. I gave you a second chance. Let's give John Mark a second chance. And Paul is like, that's all well and good, Barnabas, but what we're doing is really important. And he abandoned us, and it was really bad. We don't know what that means, but maybe it was. Maybe they were almost killed. So Paul's like, we can't, we can't take him. I'm not, I think the idea is I'm not, I'm not mad at John Mark. I forgive John Mark, but I'm not trusting John Mark. And so they both have these views. And so what happens is they split. They go different ways. Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus. That's all we hear about them. We don't know what else happens. It's interesting that later on, John Mark becomes so respected and valued that Paul actually asks for John Mark to go on a mission with them. I give Barnabas that credit. But Paul, again, there's no indication that this is wrong. Barnabas and John Mark go one way. Paul goes the other. And so Paul decides to set off up through Cilicia. Okay? And he's going to work his way up through there and then go back to Galatia and work his way through there. So he goes back to Derby, and he travels from Derby to Lystra. And when he's there, he meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy becomes a right-hand man of Paul. He actually becomes, it appears, it's a, it's a, if you kind of read through the letters to Timothy, it looks like Timothy's role is not elder of a church, but a sort of coach of elders. He becomes kind of a guy who teaches elders how to be elders so that the elders can then be good with their church. And specifically, particularly in Galatia and a little bit of Asia. The Timothy seems to be, that's his job. But when he's not doing that, he's just hanging out with Paul, doing whatever Paul wants. When, when Paul first meets Timothy, everybody loves Timothy. He's very well spoken of. Everybody in his community says, Timothy's a good guy. Paul says, hmm, I like that. And apparently Timothy wants to go with Paul. So Paul says, that's fine, come with me. And he takes him under his wing, much as Barnabas took Paul under his wing. Timothy's an interesting guy because his mother's Jewish and his father is Gentile. So in this whole question of Jew and Gentile, can they be together? It's probably also convenient for Paul to have a right-hand man who can straddle that. <laughs> but Paul does an interesting thing. After arguing that Gentiles should not have to be circumcised, the first thing he does before he takes Timothy on his mission with him is he says, Timothy, get circumcised. And the reason is this. Paul says he does everything for the sake of the gospel. And insisting that Gentiles get circumcised is obscuring the gospel. And so he fought teeth and nail against that. On the other hand, as he travels into these areas that have a lot of Jews and some Gentiles both, he doesn't want the Jews to get stopped from hearing the gospel because Paul's traveling with an uncircumcised man. So he says to Timothy, you don't have to, obviously, we know that, but get circumcised so it's not an issue. And it just shows Paul's clarity on the gospel and not wanting to obscure anything. So anyway, Timothy and Paul now are traveling together. And so they travel through Galatia. And as they do, he stops in at each of these churches again and strengthens them, encourages them. Remember, it's now it's about a year or so later. Says, how's it going? Kind of props them up. But he's also telling them about the Jerusalem Council and letting them know Gentiles are welcome. Gentiles are embraced and stop telling them they have to get circumcised. Really, I mean, that's part of what he's doing is he's going back to all these churches. Then his goal is to go into Asia. So you see that red line goes in and he starts to go into Asia and he wants to go preach throughout Asia. And all we're told by Paul is that the Holy Spirit prevented him from entering Asia. Don't know what that means for sure. I tend to think that it means there were circumstances that prevented him from entering Asia that he wasn't allowed to enter Asia. They didn't want him to come into Asia. They, they, they refused to let him come into Asia. But also the Holy Spirit said, don't fight this one. Don't fight this. It's okay. This is my move. I think it shows Paul's responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. 
But I think it also shows that he has discernment and he understands and he's not sort of always insisting. Every See, his, his response to opposition, clearly, he's not afraid of it. He's been through those cities in Galatia over and over after being stoned almost to death. He's not afraid of opposition, but he also doesn't thrive on it. And if the Holy Spirit says, just go around Asia, he goes around Asia. Is that a short detour? No, kind of a drag. You could see he could be like, we're failing. We're failing. We can't even get into Asia. But no, Paul's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit doesn't want me to go into Asia. I won't go into Asia. So what he actually does is he goes up there in 16. He's going to go out to Bithynia. That's that green area. You can't see the, the, the word Bithynia, but it's, it's up there out of, off of the screen. He's going to go up into there. And Luke tells us the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. So Paul and his companions head west to Tros. So it's like he keeps getting stymied and stopped, but he doesn't see it as a problem or a failure or an issue. He's just like, well, that's fine. The Holy Spirit will take me where he'll take me. So eventually they end up over here at Tros. And when they get to Tros, it becomes clear to them why they've been directed around Asia and from Bithynia, because God has a more important job for them. While they're in Tros, Paul has a vision that he says is Jesus directly, like Jesus again, just like the road to Damascus is talking to him. And Jesus shows him a picture of a man in Macedonia who is begging them to come. He's saying, please come help me. So in Tros, Luke joins Paul. Luke writes the book of Acts, and at this point he starts talking in first person, where up till now he's been talking in second person, so it seems clear this is where Luke joins the party. So Luke is with Paul, Paul, Timothy, and Luke, and the other, whoever the rest of them are. They go ahead then, they, they sail across to Macedonia, and they go to Philippi in Macedonia. At Philippi, Paul meets Lydia, a gal named Lydia, who is described as a worshiper of God. She's a very interesting person because she is the ruler of her household. Very unusual for that time and that age. Not sure what that means. Probably means she's a widow. Also probably means, though, she has some income and she's well enough off that she owns, owns, she heads her household. Paul meets with her. She hosts him in her house. It's fair to say she becomes a supporter of his mission and his ministry. He preaches the gospel to her. She and her whole household are baptized and he lives with her for a while. As they're hanging out there in Philippi, there's this girl who's possessed by a demon. And the result of this being possessed by a demon is that she can tell the future. Now, the scripture says she can actually do this. This is weird. I'll let you sort out the whole implications of the demons being able to see the future. I don't know what that means, but that's what she's doing. She's going around town. She tells the future. She's a psychic. Man, Siri's really interested in all this. <laughs> she's going around telling the future. And she does this weird thing where she follows Paul and Luke and Timothy around Macedonia and around Philippi and everywhere they go it says that she says listen to these people they are going to tell you about the Holy Son of God which sounds great but it's apparently not great we don't know why scripture doesn't clarify but it says that Paul gets really annoyed with her now I am sure this is not just an annoyance of this little girl is following us around and saying things good things I think it indicates that either she's being sarcastic in the way she's saying things, or she's saying that, but then she's using it for her own gain, right? By hanging out with them, she's like, they're going to tell you about the Holy One of God, and for 50, you know, silver pieces, I will tell you uh, what's going to happen to you tomorrow. I think that's what's happening, and there's a reason to think that here in a second. So it says at a certain point, they kind of ignore it for a while. Paul's like, whatever. But eventually it says Paul gets annoyed, and so what does he do when he gets annoyed? He says, demon, go, and it leaves the, the girl. <laughs> 
Now, this is why I think she was actually making money following them around, because the very next thing that happens is there's a whole group of people that are very upset with Paul because their money-making opportunity just went away. In other words, they, it says, they were making money through her powers, and now she doesn't have her powers anymore, and instead of being happy that she's been freed of a demon, they're like, Paul, you just cost us our living. And so what do they want to do? What do people want to do? They want to kill Paul and Silas. Oh, Silas. I forgot to mention Silas. He picks up Silas along the way here too in Macedonia. So his group, his group is growing. So Paul and Silas get thrown in prison in this case here in Philippi. So they get thrown in prison. And this is where that story happens that I actually told you guys a few months ago. There's a big earthquake. All the cell doors open and all the chains fall off of the prisoners. Now, let's be honest. That's not how earthquakes work. Okay? But that's how this earthquake works. Yeah, exactly. It's clearly a God earthquake. The chains fall off. The doors open. But what's fascinating is Paul and Silas, apparently, this is how I understand it, have been preaching to the other prisoners. And they're so caught up in a worship moment with these other prisoners who have received the Lord, they either don't care or don't notice that the the, the, uh, cell doors are open and they don't leave. But the guard wakes up, who was not supposed to have been asleep, and he sees the cell doors open, and he's so terrified of the punishment that he will receive at the Romans' hands for letting prisoners escape. It's apparently not only death, but painful death, because he's so terrified that he's going to kill himself rather than go through that punishment. And just as he's about to kill himself, Paul and Silas are like, wait, dude, we're here. Nobody's gone. Nobody left, which is why I think the other prisoners were all believers now, too, because none of them left. And the guard says, that's amazing. What's going on? Paul and Silas share the gospel with him. He gets saved. He takes him home to his house. Weird too, right? He, he wanted to not let them escape. Now they're in his house. He, he, they baptize his whole household. And the next day they're released. Again, what happens in there? We have no idea, but it was God's plan. And so they leave. They travel to Thessalonica. Okay, so they travel at Thessalonica where Paul spends, it says, three Sabbaths in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. So he goes in the synagogues and he's allowed there to be there three times before anybody shows any opposition. We're told specifically that while he's there, Greeks and Jews believe that there's a mix of both in Thessalonica who believe him. But we're also told that some Jews get really jealous and they start a riot. Now, they don't catch Paul, and they don't catch Silas, and they don't catch Timothy and, and Luke. They don't catch the bigwigs, uh, but they do catch a guy named Jason, who's a new believer in a house. And they take Jason, and they take him to prison, and Paul and Silas, there's, there's minor indications, Paul and Silas are ready to go rescue Jason, and all the other believers in Thessalonica are like, no, you have to go keep doing your mission. We'll take care of Jason. And so they, they usher all of them out of town in the middle of the night, For those of you who worried about Jason, Jason has to post a bond, and apparently he's okay after that. Though we don't hear any more about Jason. Jason's not a big scripture name, by the way, but comes up here. Yeah, true. So he's probably a Gentile, right? Uh, Probably named after the Argonaut guy. Uh, So then they get to Berea. When they get to Berea, we're told specifically that the Bereans are more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, meaning they don't immediately try to oppose them. They listen. They also search the scripture to see if what Paul's saying is true. So they're actually really thinking about it. They're working with it. They have a lot of success in Berea. Things are going really well. But guess what happens? Some Jews from Thessalonica are not done. And they travel down to Berea. They follow Paul and Silas. And they come down and they stir up trouble for them in Berea. And so, once again, the believers in Berea are like, you got to go. We'll take care of the church here. 
but you got to go. And so they, they put them and they send Paul to the coast and to Athens, but Silas and Timothy stay behind to help organize things in Berea to set up the elders, to set up the churches and to make sure they're good. Because Paul is the lightning rod at this point. So Paul leaves and he goes to Athens. Now, he's supposed to just wait for them in Athens. This is supposed to be like downtime, but this is Paul. There's no such thing as downtime. So while he's in Athens, it says he spends time reasoning both in the synagogues and the marketplace. And it's the first time it uses this phrase. Usually it says he preaches. Here it says he reasons in the synagogue and the marketplace. And I think the reason for this is because he's in Athens. Athens is the center of Greek philosophy. Athens is a place where, according to Luke's own words in the book of Acts, they like to sit around and talk all day. That's what he says about the people in Athens. They like argument. They like reasoning. And I think that's even true of the Jews because they're part of that culture who live there. So Paul just fits right in. He's like, instead of preaching, we're going to lean heavily on that whole reasoning thing. And so he reasons every day in the synagogue and in the marketplace and the synagogue, not so effective. Marketplace, a little more so. As he starts reasoning in the marketplace with the Gentiles, it says that they, they invite him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is a place, it's the council of the city elders and philosophers and leaders. It's kind of the place where they sit around and talk all day. And so they invite him there because they want to hear this new teaching. They're excited about new teachings. So they want to hear what he has to say. While he's there, a really interesting thing happens. And I'll try to make this quick, but this is so cool. So he sees a statue, and this statue is, we don't know what the statue looks like. My guess is it doesn't even have a form. It's, it's, it's probably just a pillar or it's abstract, but there's a statue, and the statue has an inscription, and the inscription says, the unknown God. So they have a statue of a God whose name is the unknown God. We actually know historically very probably what this statue is about and why it's here. Remember, this is Athens. This is the center of Greek philosophy. And who is the king of Greek philosophy? Socrates. Socrates was executed, you might remember, for being a heretic. They, they, you'll read he was executed for being an atheist, but that didn't mean what it means to us. He's, he believed in a lot of gods, but they didn't think he believed in enough gods, and he believed in one too many gods. It was all very inconsistent. But the problem is, essentially what it comes down to is he was fine. Zeus and Apollo, he thought, yeah, they're probably all real. They're probably there, but they're glorified humans. And he essentially says in his reasoning, as he's going through everything, he says, glorified humans like Zeus and Apollo could never have created this universe. It's too orderly. It's too normal. You know, if they created the universe, they would create it the way you and I would create it, which would be complete chaos. And so he says, there has to be another God that's above Zeus, one who is perfect, one who's not like the other gods, one who is other and holy. He uses a Greek word for holy, not exactly the same, but very similar. One who is other, one who's different. And he's so different, he's so different that we can never know him. We just can't comprehend who he is. He's an unknown God. And if that's where Socrates stopped, it's a really sort of unhelpful picture. Great, there's an unknown God we'll never know. Socrates, though, continues his reasoning. And he says, if this God is the God who created the universe, though, there's so many markers in the universe, and I figured it out that this God exists. I think that this God also wants to be known. And if this God wants to be known, but he knows that he's unknowable, still with me? <laughs> then what will he have to do? He will have to make himself known. And this is when Socrates introduces a word that you might have thought John created, but it's really cool that he didn't. John just uses it. Logos. Socrates says, God will send a message, a logos. And that logos will tell us who the unknown God is. So Paul, standing here in Athens, he sees this statue. Paul's a smart guy. He knows all that history I just told you. 
And he says to them, you know what? Guess what, guys? I got exciting news, right? On a dime, he turns from Jesus is the Messiah, because that's the word the Jews understand, to what's the Messiah for Greeks? It's the Logos. It's this message for this unknown God. He says, I see you worship an unknown God. And instead of arguing with him and saying, that's blasphemy, he says, that is so awesome that you do. I have really good news for you. That Logos that Socrates talked about, he's come. His name is Jesus. And because of that, you now know this unknown God. That's pretty cool, the way he does that. I just love that. And it's this cool intersection of history we know with this scriptural uh, understanding. And he explains that Jesus is God. Now, the, the scripture uses an interesting phrase at this point. It says, some believe. I think that's a little underwhelming. I think that is intended to be a little underwhelming. It's like they like to sit around and talk all day. They're not all that keen on actually grabbing onto anything. But some believe. Some do. Some hear this message and they respond to it. And from there, he travels to Corinth. And at Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And here's the thing. He still doesn't have his team with him, right? He's alone. So he's in Corinth now. He's not really, he's still kind of waiting and he's not doing full-time ministry right now because he doesn't have his support network. And what he does do, one of his many skills is he's a tent maker. So he ends up hanging out with these other tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila, a couple who make tents. And they put them up in their home and they make tents together. And that's what they decide to do. And so every while he's there, he still preaches every Sabbath at the synagogue. Finally, Timothy and Silas arrive, and Paul is able to dedicate more time to the gospel. And he's increasingly rejected by the Jews and embraced by the Gentiles. So he begins to focus more and more on that. And then my notes uh, uh, leave me, but I think I can remember. So he leaves Athens and he goes to Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, he starts preaching the gospel. Oh, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke join him and they all go off to, to Ephesus. This is their first inroads into Asia. And he goes to Ephesus and he begins to preach to, to Ephesus and the Gentiles. They grab it really hard. They love it. And so they, they become uh, really enamored. And he spends, um, I think, three months with them this time around. And he raises up the church and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila basically to lead the church when he leaves. He, leads the, he leaves them there to do that. And, and over time, what we discover is that Ephesus affects all of Asia. So you remember how he couldn't get into Asia? God was like, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you this little tiny, tiny little corner of Asia. It's all you're going to need. Because that is literally what happens. Ephesus is such an amazing church that they, they, in fact, they, they impact all of Asia. We're told in the scripture that some amazing things happen in Ephesus. God did some big miracles, but it doesn't tell us what. But that's part of what helped give Ephesus their credibility. And pretty soon it spreads across all of Asia. So then he leaves Ephesus and he heads back to Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he discovers there's some financial needs in Jerusalem. And he puts that in the back of his head. And he says, next time I go out on a journey, I'm going to start collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem. Okay? We don't know the specifics, but there was apparently some big need. Then he leaves Jerusalem and he goes back to Antioch. And that's the second missionary journey. We're almost done. He comes to, this is his third missionary journey. Okay? Now, this one you can see, it's a little simpler to follow. He just starts in Antioch. He goes up, he goes back through Galatia where he keeps going. He goes back into Asia now a little bit. Spends time in Ephesus. He goes all the way up into Macedonia, Achaia. Comes around, makes a circle back through Macedonia. Comes back down through Ephesus again and then back over. And this time he ends in Jerusalem, all right? 
And this is his third missionary journey. There might be a fourth one, depends on how you read it. I think there probably was. But this is his third missionary journey. But notice how much of this journey is touching base with all the churches that he's already planted. Right? You can see, he, every time he goes on a journey, he's like, well, I've got to go back to all the places I've been before so that I can help them. He spends maybe a year in Antioch. He sets out from Antioch on his third journey. We're probably around A.D. 54 at this point. And so he's decided he's going to head off to Galatia. So he visits all the congregations again that he started in Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the believers, heads off to the interior of Asia for the first time, a little bit there, but mostly, guess where he's going? Ephesus. He gets to Ephesus, and it says specifically, he says specifically at one point while he was there, he instructed the believers about baptism. So maybe Aquila and Priscilla weren't clear on baptism. Maybe they didn't understand it. Baptism is an interesting thing because it is the, it is the thing that Jesus gave to replace circumcision, right? It is this outward symbol that you give to say we are part of God's people. So you can see how that might be an important thing for Paul to talk to the Ephesians about. Don't know why that happened to be, but that's what, one of the things he talks to them about. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches Jesus as Messiah. He does this for three months, and then the Jews say no more. They don't kill him, but they just refuse to let him in the synagogue. So what does he do? For the next two years, he stays in Ephesus, and he has daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He goes to the, to the Gentile University and becomes a regular guest lecturer because that's where they'll listen. And it is at this moment that, that the, 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 the work of Ephesus becomes even more clear. And it tells us that the word spreads throughout the province of Asia. While he's there, uh, that's where it actually says some miraculous things happen. Uh, he spends two years there. The only reason he leaves, and this is cool because it actually shows you how much impact Ephesus is having over the whole area, over all of Asia. Because the reason Paul ends up leaving Ephesus, he seems like he's going to stay there for a while. He's there for two years, basically three total. And while he's there, what happens, though, is the silversmiths in all of Asia start losing their income. And you know why? Because their biggest income was silver idols. And suddenly, all these Christians don't want to buy idols. And they're having so much impact on Asia that they're literally not able to sell their silver idols anymore. So when that happens, who do they get mad at? Oh, Paul, of course, yeah. So they get mad at Paul. They start a riot. They come after him. The city clerk in Ephesus somehow comes out and says, you guys chill. Find another job. Do something else with your silver. But don't blame Paul. Is the city clerk a believer? Maybe. Who knows? But it kind of all goes away. Comes out and he's like, don't do that. But nonetheless, Paul's like, yeah, this is usually when I leave. So he decides he's going to head to Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia, again, encouraging all the churches that he's already talked to is there. While he's in Macedonia, he writes a letter to the believers in Corinth. This is the second letter. Forgot to mention the first one. He wrote that when he was back between journeys. He writes a second letter, 2 Corinthians, to the believers in Corinth who are having a tough time. And so he writes them. And then after he writes them, guess what he does? He goes to see them. <laughs> As soon as he can get out of Macedonia, he goes ahead and he goes to Corinth and he goes down to there, there and he stays with them for three months. And while he's there, he writes a letter to the Romans. And the first thing you should ask is, why is he writing a letter to the Romans? He sure didn't, did he? Rome. He didn't build a church in Rome. Why are there believers in Rome? It's not even on his route. He's never made it that far. 
It's the center of a lot of things. Okay, so here's my question, right? We're going to wrap up with this. There's some things we know about Paul from going through all that. I hope it wasn't too boring. I hope it was interesting. Uh, but we went through all that. There's some things we know about Paul. All right, so here's some things. You guys mentioned some of them. Here's some things we noticed. Number one, Paul's never been to Rome, which, again, is really cool that Paul is so confident in the Holy Spirit's work that he doesn't really get to Asia, but Ephesus takes care of it. He doesn't get to Rome. We don't even know how, but Rome has a substantial church of believers that he writes them a letter at this point. And why is he writing them a letter? I, well, because he is an important guy in that area, but he's never been there. He didn't go there. And we're not told who did go there. Could have been Peter, could have been James, could have been somebody from Macedonia, right? It just spreads. The gospel is spreading. And Paul's totally fine with that. Oh, ironically, after he goes back to Jerusalem, the next thing that happens before his fourth journey is he gets arrested and he gets put on trial, guess where? In Rome. That's the first time he makes it to Rome. Again, not because he made an effort to get there, but because God put him in prison there. Uh, Paul is increasingly focused on the Gentiles, but concerned about the Jews. This is another thing we see. He never stops trying to preach in the synagogues, but he's increasingly focused on the Gentiles. So we would expect that would be part of this letter. We know that he's already experienced significant opposition and hardship. It's already happened. He hasn't even been thrown in prison in Rome yet, where he's in fear for his life. But think about how much of his life he's in fear for his life. Like, that's, that's easy to sort of read and not think much about. But that's stressful. To go from city to city and everywhere you go, people are like, we have a plot to kill you. I mean, he's essentially on the run everywhere he goes. We know that he's been preaching the gospel for about five to seven years at this point, and he's been doing it obsessively. I mean, look at this guy. It doesn't matter where he is, what he's doing, he's preaching the gospel obsessively. Uh, we know that he's had at least three visions where Jesus spoke to him directly. This is the guy who never met Jesus when Jesus walked the earth, and he's had a lot of interactions with Jesus. We find out in another letter that he has another interaction with Jesus that is so amazing he can't even tell us about it. He's like, I can't tell you about it. And then after I had it, Jesus was like, now you're going to have a big head, so I'm going to give you something to keep you from having a big head. That's that whole thorn in the flesh thing. And we know that he's sensitive to the Spirit's leading and confident in it. When the Spirit says, don't go here, he's like, okay, I guess that's fine. You'll take care of it. And God does. Okay, so these are things we learn about him. So I just want to read this. I'm not going to comment on it. I know it took us a while to get here, but Paul was patient. He took six years. We can take 60 minutes, I suppose. Okay, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called. I just, as I read this, I want you to notice how many of the things we saw in Paul show up just in the brief introduction, okay? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was anointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This fits so well, everything we know about Paul from his journeys. There's that emphasis on the Gentiles. Even the fact that he's writing them to encourage them, I know I didn't come see you, but you are those Gentiles. You count. Right? It didn't have to be me. 
That also tells us something about Paul. He doesn't feel controlling about all this, does he? It's his calling, but it's not his ministry. <laughs> right? He's called. He's focused. He's a Jew who understands the Jewish roots, but also the grace and the call to Gentiles. And he can't help in the first three sentences to share the gospel because he's obsessive about that. We know just basically this is written by Paul and it's written to all the Romans who believe. Jews and Gentiles both, but there's an emphasis to Gentiles in that first sentence. Then he says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Not only is Rome amazingly a church that he never created, but it's become such an important church. Makes sense, it's in Rome. It's become such a central important church that it's affecting the whole world. God's like, Paul, I don't need you to go to Rome, but Rome's going to be a big deal. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He's like, I've been praying about you all along. I keep hearing about the great things. I'm amazed. I'm excited. He's encouraged. He's a year. He's enthusiastic. He has no desire to control them. He has no jealousy about the fact that he wasn't part of this great movement. And, but he really wants to come see them because it's awesome what's happening. That's, that's Paul. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is that whole slice of grace, mutual many-to-many -many discipleship we talk about at Focus Church. Notice how Paul isn't like, I need to come to you to set you straight and give you my gifts because you need me. He's like, I do want to come give you some gift of grace. He doesn't, it's like he doesn't even know what it'll be until he gets there. But I want to give you some gift of grace. But then he's really clear. But actually, I need you. I want to come so that you can also strengthen me. Because you've had these experiences I haven't been part of. I want to hear. I want to know. I want your slice of grace to benefit me. I want my slice of grace to benefit you. I love the way that that is that many-to-many -many discipleship that we talk about here at Focus. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. Prevented by who? By the Romans? By the Holy Spirit? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I think Paul would say both. In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Not that he's been prevented, but that he wanted to come to do that. He sees, he sees all these things. Slice of grace stuff right there. And then this will be the last slide. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I'm obligated to everybody. But notice the interesting way he says this. As a Jew, wouldn't it make more sense to say, I'm obligated to the Jews and the non-Jews? But you can see that his emphasis is the Gentiles, that he says, I'm obligated to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Not even the Jews, just the non-Greeks. <laughs> I'm obligated to everybody, but his emphasis is on the Gentiles. And that's why I want to come preach the gospel to you. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Does this not sound like his mission statement? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here he is. He's going to tell them in case you've got any confusion out there. And I don't think you have because I've heard great things. But just in case, it's about faith. Your righteousness is by faith. You Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. It's about faith. The righteousness is by faith. And the gospel isn't just the words I bring. It's the power of God. 
We're going to talk about that. We're going to start with that verse next week. Thank you for hanging out and listening. Hopefully, I don't know if the experiment worked, but hopefully it was interesting and informative. And uh, go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.